What's up, everybody? We are back at it again. Uh, hoping people can hear me, hoping everything's good, hoping you've been good. It's been a while, over a week, you know how life gets. And life has been uh, pretty, pretty crazy on my end. I'm not going to lie about that. It's been pretty nuts. I'm not even sure, too. I'm still trying to make sure my setup's good. Um, hopefully everyone can hear me okay. And if not, let me know. Because there have been a lot of changes. A lot of changes in my life recently. Oh, man. What a week. What a week, 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 what a week. Well, welcome to the show. Um, Alana, I hope you can hear me. Uh, if you give me like a, I don't know, like a thumbs up or a, something in the chat just to let me know, uh, that'd be great. But uh, hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Fred Hampton Inn and Suites. Uh, I got a special one for you today, but man, it has been, today's been the wildest day. Uh, it's been a long time. It's been, it's, it's been a wild week actually. So uh, between the last show and this show, I ended up moving. Uh, so I moved in with the the girl that I'm dating in a house that she bought, <laughs> which I helped a little bit. Um, and uh, I got to tell you, this has been a, a, a bit of a wild ride in just shit going wrong. <laughs> you know, we're cool. We're having a good time, but like, oh my God, we woke up this morning and we moved in on Friday. So I've been, I had to pack up a whole apartment and get all the shit in here and get it ready to go and whatever. Um, but moved in on Friday, uh, got everything in within, you know, like just that weekend, basically two days or three days. Uh, we just spent the whole time moving, moving, moving everything. And then this morning we wake up and there's no heat. And for those of you who don't know, I live in Chicago, which is uh, actually one of the coldest places that you could possibly live in the United States, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, to wake up with no heat in Chicago, uh, there's a lot of people who don't wake up. So we've been all day today. I've just been freezing my ass off. I mean, it is it is so cold. Literally in the in in the outside, it's like eight degrees Fahrenheit. And inside, it's maybe I don't know. Inside, it's maybe twenty five degrees in my house. <laughs> okay, so I I'm just. Right now, I don't have my camera set up yet, but I, I've i built basically a little fort inside of my house where I have a tarp. <laughs> I literally have a tarp behind me and this little nook of this little corner in the basement so I can preserve heat. And then I have two space heaters on different outlets so that I don't trip the damn, uh, you know, the fuses just to try to get enough warmth. And I am like shivering. <laughs> It sucks, dude. This is, this absolutely sucks. So I hope wherever you are, um, 
listening to this or or being here that you are warmer than I am right now because hot damn, it is cold. It is, I mean, it's literally, it's, it's, you know, but that's enough about me. Um, God, just don't move. Don't move. It is a, it's a hassle. Um, but if you do move, make sure you have heat. That's that's the moral of that story. But I want to go ahead and get started with sort of what I want to talk about tonight. And it's really, it's a broader topic than what the the title would lead you to believe. Uh, tonight's show is really about becoming a right-wing grifter for fun and profit. But really, it's not, it's not just that. It's, it's, it's a discussion and a, a look into why people like Steven Crowder will be offered contracts to do a show that are, uh, you know, $50 million for three or four years. Why someone like him would be offered that contract, despite the fact that he doesn't have the viewership to justify it. Despite the fact that, like, you know, his show is, it just kind of sucks, in my opinion. Um, but why is it? Why why would someone like that be offered that kind of money to do that kind of show? Um, and I want to kind of explore that a little bit. Because I think people tend to hear about the current media sphere and uh, have a lot of opinions about you know, things like fake news and corporate media and uh, sort of a lot of questions around these new sort of this new class of independent political commentators who are making a lot of money and they're wondering why that is. And I think a lot of this goes back to Chomsky. A lot of it goes back to uh, corporate propaganda and a lot of it goes back to a system that is set up to create certain viewpoints to uh, put those viewpoints out in the world in order to benefit a politically elite class and an economically elite class that is already benefiting. So by the end of today, I hope that we can see that uh, people like Steven Crowder and people, you know, not just the corporate media people like Anderson Cooper or whoever, but people like Steven Crowder are, are, the reason that they are successful in large part, uh, at least financially, is by design because they they cater to the system as it is. They play to the right players and they they press the buttons that uh, political and corporate elites need them to press in some way or another. They're useful uh, tools for maintaining the current power structure. So. Uh, all that being said, if you don't know who Steven Crowder is, you might be asking, who is Steven Crowder? Well, he is a uh, kind of a far-right streamer slash entertainer, and I use that word lightly, who has a show on, it's either on YouTube or it's some kind of one of those YouTube-type shows called Louder with Crowder where he basically just uh, 
talks a bunch of shit about communism uh, is against, you know, the whole woke agenda. And, you know, does a bunch of like offensive shit on the show. And if it was just a bunch of offensive shit, that would be fine. Honestly, uh, there's plenty of really good offensive shit that is able to uh, sustain itself. That's worth it just because it's funny or it's really, I don't know, it's creative, whatever. Steven Crowder is none of that. Um, it is all talking points, a lot of misleading news segments. Um, one of the most infamous ones is he had a whole segment about anti-global warming. There is no real global warming because NASA says that the icebergs are not melting. But he failed to mention that the icebergs were not melting in one specific area, in one specific region, and how that was also consistent with, with uh, you know, wider climate change. I mean, he does stuff that is, that is honestly misleading. Uh, you know, quoting facts and statistics and graphs and everything, showing them out of context. Uh, there's no, I'll put it this way. There's no, there's no way this is a good faith actor. I'll just put that out there. And if you want to disagree, go for it. But, uh, his track record is so bad that it's hard to accept anything he's doing in good faith. Um, he's someone with an agenda who wants people to believe certain things and caters to a certain audience. And that's been somewhat successful for him. He's had about 350,000 subscribers, if you believe him, or, or people who tune into his show. And as part of this uh, sort of show, eventually, uh, pretty recently, within the last couple of weeks, he was approached by a media company known as The Daily Wire. And The Daily Wire was trying to work out a contract with Steven Crowder to bring him on board, to bring the louder with Crowder brand into the daily wire now if you don't know the daily wire uh they are a a, a right-wing news outlet that was uh founded by uh two people uh one is jeremy boring and the other is someone you may have heard of named ben shapiro um ben shapiro is the other person who is uh, a founder of the daily wire and he talks like this and he says, facts don't care about your feelings. And uh, he has a lot of politically bad takes. And people like him, though. Look, Ben Shapiro, I I'll give him this. He, he could be entertaining if for nothing else, if for all the wrong reasons. You know, he, he seems, I don't know. I, don't, I, I wish I knew what the appeal of Ben Shapiro was. I'll, I'll give you the, the appeal of Ben Shapiro is, is stuff like... Um, the moral outrage that he has for songs like wet ass pussy. When WAP came out, uh, if you remember WAP, which was Cardi B and uh, Meg Thee Stallion came out with a great song called uh, WAP, which stands for wet ass pussy. And uh, <laughs> they a whole, a whole bop of it. And Ben Shapiro had a stunning reaction to that song he was very very upset with it uh and uh if i can play maybe just a little bit of it i'll play some of it here and let me know if you can hear a lot of attention paid to a music video it's called wap 
okay, which we're going to get into in, in just one second. And it seems to me that there's a segment that we've been remiss in ignoring for a long time now on the show. We used to do it much more regularly. It's called deconstructing the culture. So it is time once again to deconstruct the culture where we take an important piece of popular culture and we, and we break it down for its important aspects in American life. So let's deconstruct a little bit of culture. So there's this video that went out. It is by a person named Cardi B who has a rather checkered past. I mean, she, she's talked on video about how she used to drug men and steal their money after, after bringing them back as, as what, a quasi-prostitute, something like that. Uh, and then she became a rapper, so American success story. And there's another rapper whose name is Megan the Stallion. I assume this is her given name. Her last name is Stallion, and her parents named her Megan the. Um, and I, I don't know why her middle name is the as opposed to the, um, but apparently you are the Stallion, not just, not just the, she, the, the are the Stallion. In any case... There's this new video, and just as a preface to this video, let me note some of the headlines about this video from mainstream outlets. The headline from Complex was, Why Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's empowering anthem, WAP, is so important. It's very important, guys. It's a very, very empowering, important anthem. Grammy, Grammy Grammy.com, they put out a, a, like, people who do the Grammy Awards, they put out a headline, Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion deliver a juicy collaboration. With WAP. Wow. I mean, it must be important. Metro UK put out a headline. The backlash to Cardi B and Megan the Stallion's WAP proves society still hates sexually powerful women. Hmm. Apparently, according to Billboard, Christina Aguilera is feeling some type of way about Cardi B and Megan the Stallion's WAP. This is a deeply important piece of art, guys. And then Black Entertainment TV, BET, they put out a headline. Cardi B perfectly claps back at misogynistic criticism of WAP. Because all criticism of WAP is misogynistic, like deeply misogynistic and sexist, as, as it turns out. And this video, this music video, had 56 million views within 48 hours of release because it, it got all sorts of press, and it was deeply important. This is a deeply important piece of American art that we should all pay attention to. It is deeply empowering. So we're going to play a little bit of the video, and then I'm going to read you some of the lyrics to WAP, which stands for a thing. I can't say most of the words in this song. I mean, I can pronounce them, but if I, if I say them aloud, then we will be banned by the FCC. So here is a little bit of this video. So as you can see, there's water pouring out from the front of the, of a mansion. Okay. Here are these two ladies. And then there is just a giant golden butt. Okay. And then there's golden boobs that apparently are spouting water. Um, it's, um, yeah, so this is all great. And then there's some tigers, and this is apparently the tackiest mansion that has ever been. And, um, then there, there's them lying there with a bunch of snakes. And, you know, kind of typical music video kind of stuff, but it's very empowering. It's deeply, deeply empowering stuff. So, if you can't hear the lyrics, because it's, because, um, I don't know why you would hear the lyrics, <laughs> frankly. Uh, here are here are some of the lyrics. This is this is empowering stuff, guys. This is like Susan B. Anthony. This is like women fighting for the right to vote. This right here is women fighting for the right to work. Right here, what we are watching is women fighting for the equal right to talk about their wet-ass P-word. That's what the WAP stands for. So here are the actual lyrics. Okay, and this is, this is not demeaning to women in any way. It's not demeaning to women in any way. It doesn't turn women into sex objects. It doesn't make men think of women. In a, in a purely sexual fashion, it, it, it is women empowering themselves. It is super empowerment. Here are some of the lyrics. You ready? Whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. 
There's some whores in this house. Hold up. I said certified freak seven days a week. Wet ass P word. Make that pullout game weak. Yeah, you effin' with some wet ass P word. P word is female genitalia. Bring a bucket and a mop for this wet ass P word. Give me everything you got for this wet ass P word. Beat it up, N word. Catch a charge. Extra large and extra hard. Put this P word right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. Hop on top, I want to ride. I do a kegel while it's inside. Spit in my mouth, look in my eyes. This P word is wet. Come take a dive. It continued uh, along these lines. Uh, and it gets significantly, significantly more vulgar. Like a, a lot more vulgar. Talk your S word, bite your lip. Ask for a call while you ride that D word. You really ain't never going to F him for a thing. He already made his mind up before he came. Now get your boots and your coat for this wet ass P word. Pay my tuition just to kiss me on this wet ass. Right. So this is deep guys. This, this is what feminists fought for. This is what the feminist movement was all about. It's not, uh, it, it's not really about, you know, women being treated as independent full. Okay. Well, that's, uh, you get a good sense of who Ben Shapiro is. For those of you who didn't know who he was is, uh, just how upset he was over a song that he can't even say the title of. Uh, that should give you a little indication. And and some people in the chat have noticed or mentioned that he uh, admitted to never once pleasuring his wife uh, during this segment because he goes on to say, well, I talked to my wife. I, I talked to my wife, who is a doctor, and um, she said that a, a wet P word is a uh, sign of vaginal uh, hydroclonosis. And that they should go to a doctor to get that checked out. Yeah. You know what else people used to go to the doctor for? Uh, hysteria, which was, uh, you know, a bunch of women who weren't coming because they had husbands like Ben Shapiro who weren't doing anything to their wet ass P word. Okay. So I don't want to fucking hear it from Ben Shapiro about it. Look, I'm not a big fan of him. He can be entertaining, but this is one of the founders of the daily wire. Right. And, and what's interesting about Ben Shapiro here uh, with the Daily Wire is um, it's founded in 2015 and they start with uh, a couple million dollars from uh, some, uh, you know, people that you raise money from billionaires. Uh, I believe they had some billionaires from like the, the gas industry or something who started uh, at least initially with uh the seed funding for the Daily Wire. But at this point, the Daily Wire is built up to a, a somewhat well-known uh, conservative uh, news and media network, but I say news lightly. Uh, it's not really news, it's propaganda. And they have about a million subscribers or so now, that's what they claim. But a million subscribers, okay, that's pretty good, uh, who are like monthly subscription people, whatever. But uh, how does Steven Crowder work back into this? So the Daily Wire recently in the last week, or maybe it's two weeks now, but offered uh, Steven Crowder a contract to work for them. Now, the Daily Wire people, uh, which again include people like Ben Shapiro, but also people like Candace Owens, who again is just uh, another person that I just, I, I don't believe she's, ever said something valuable, if I'm being honest. 
Um, there are people who are on this call-in who have conservative beliefs, who say more valuable things and more worthwhile things every fucking day when compared to Candace Owens. Uh, she's someone who it's almost like they give her a sheet of what to say, and she just says it. And she says it with confidence because, again, she's kind of a mouthpiece for a propaganda machine. Um, but uh, it comes out that Steven Crowder, the Daily Wire, is trying to hire Steven Crowder. Okay, great. Uh, they get into some kind of dispute over the terms of that contract. And in that dispute happening, the, some of the terms of that contract have become public. And what is fascinating and I think was shocking to most people is that in this contract over the course of like three years or four years, Steven Crowder was going to be paid. Are you ready? $50 million, million, $50 million to join the daily wire. Now here's what's crazy. Let's go back over some numbers. Okay. Steven Crowder had at most, 350,000 subscribers who are watching his show, Ladder with Crowder, 350,000. A salary of 50 million over the course of four years, that breaks down to just, you know, like 12 million, 12.5 million-ish, or 12.3, whatever it is, a year to maintain a subscriber base of 350,000. That's insane. Okay, that the numbers of 350,000 subscribers are not justified by the $50 million that he was going to be paid. But the incredible thing is that Steven Crowder turns this down because he doesn't like some of the other provisions of the contract, mainly that if he was missing days or if he wasn't pulling the same amount of subscribers that he was subject to certain fees or they would they would reduce his salary somewhat. But if you start at 50 million, shit, if they offered him 10 million, 5 million, that would be insane. 5 million for four years, that's more than just about anyone on here will make. Shit, uh, there's not a there's not a YouTuber that I know of who pulls the same kind of numbers as Steven Crowder who's going to make anywhere near 5 million over the course of four years. If anything, they might make one if they're lucky and if there's a lot of merchandise sold, okay? So why is it? Why is it that that someone like Steven Crowder, who does not have the pool, who frankly does not have the talent and does not have the audience would be offered so much money and if he's making that much money, if he had the opportunity to make that much money, how much is Candace Owens making? How much is Ben Shapiro making? And why are they making that much from the Daily Wire? Here are some other numbers from the Daily Wire. I pulled their numbers just to try to figure out, just to try to contextualize how the hell somebody could be making 50 million or someone like Crowder could be offered 50 million over the course of four years. It's insane to me. But here's what I found. Uh, in at least 2022, 
the Daily Wire's uh, annual revenues had just exceeded for the first time, according to what I found and also Wikipedia, but had just exceeded for the first time 100 million. So that's their revenue from 2022. And let's be clear here. Revenue is all the money that you bring in. It's not profits. It's not that the Daily Wire in 2022 had made $100 million worth of profit to spread around. No, that's all the money that they've brought in. So that doesn't deal with any of the expenses that they may have. That doesn't deal with the massive salary they got to be paying Ben Shapiro, the massive salary they got to be paying Candace Owens, the salary of their more than 150 employees, the equipment, the production shit, everything else, right? That does not, revenue does not account for any of that. So if, to me, if you're able to offer Steven Crowder $50 million over the course of four years, then you're also willing to operate in the hole to some extent. I can't imagine that Steven Crowder would make the Daily Wire that much more profitable or profitable at all. And it seems like, from what I've been able to find, that the Daily Wire is not operating. Uh, they're making money, but they're not operating on a profit. So if we if we trust free market principles, just for the sake of, you know, this idea of the free market, then these people are not being paid what uh, they're worth. They're being paid way in excess of what they're actually worth for the service they actually provide and the money they actually bring in. So that whole capitalism argument as applied to these people, the Daily Wire in particular and the, the people who are associated with it, it doesn't really make much sense because they're not, you know, you get paid. If you're supposed to be paid what you're worth, why are these people being paid far in excess of what they're worth? And why would that be? Well, we have to look at this concept of manufacturing consent. We have to look at Chomsky and we have to look at other examples that we have today. I mean, look at, uh, you know, when we talk about news and we talk about people like uh, Ted Turner owning CNN and uh, Rupert Murdoch owning Fox News and the kind of messages that they put out, uh, you start to see that. Or, you know, like Jeff Bezos with The Washington Post is pr probably one of the best examples currently. Um, what you see is that billionaires and the most elite of the elites find it worthwhile to buy news networks. Now, why? Why is that? Because if you look at CNN right now, they're not exactly turning a profit. And they're paying a lot of their anchors tons of money. If you look at Fox News, yeah, they have more viewers than CNN, quite a bit more, but they're not exactly, you know, breaking millions and millions of people a night. So to some extent, there is a an acceptance among these elites that buying a news network or buying some kind of media arm will operate to some extent on a loss, right? This is not the primary 
motive or motivator to bring in money or the primary motivation nowadays in particular to buy in a news network is not to bring in money, but it's to have more control over the message. It's to have more of an ability to directly control what kind of narratives get put out there, what uh, people get to read as the news. And I say the news with air quotes, because by the time it makes it to your newspaper or to your uh, news show, there's already, uh, that information's already been filtered through. And it's already been filtered through the big boss, the owner of the newspaper. And the message has already been approved by the corporate elites who own the newspaper. Even the news that you are exposed to uh, from a lot of these people, you know, bigger corporations, sure. Traditional media, absolutely. But even these messages from people like uh, Ben Shapiro, these news outlets that seem more independent, uh, to the extent that they are able to have this much money behind them and able to operate at a loss while this much money is behind them, then you know, or you should at least very much suspect that the messages that they're putting out there have already been pre-approved by the people who already have their foot on your neck. By the very same political system and political and corporatist class classes that own everything, you better know that if Ben Shapiro's out there saying whatever he's saying, they want him to say that. They like that. They feel like it benefits him. Because if nothing else, even if it's just, you know, maybe the, the corporate elite's personal preferences, right? Maybe if the owner of the newspaper doesn't have a greater nefarious purpose to, like, shaping whatever message the news is putting out. The fact of the matter is that the approval still has to go through them. The approval of what news stories really get run has to go through them. And this brings us back to Chomsky and the concept of manufacturing consent, which I believe, at least to me, has been one of the most, influence, most influential uh, concepts in my life of how I consume media, of how I consume narratives, and of what I think about when reading quote unquote news. And we're going to go over this a little bit. I know I see we already have some callers, but I want to go into this just a bit because uh, it can get a little heady. But most of you already know these things intuitively. Uh, mainly because in the times that we're living in, uh, you can kind of, well, some of that sheen, some of that shine that's been uh, maybe obscuring our view of the truth has, has started to dull down. And... I think, well, you know, I think more more people today are are willing to accept narratives of fake news 
specifically because we just got out of two wars where we were lied into them, Iraq and Afghanistan. And we were lied into them by a media, a mass media, that uncritically accepted the propaganda from George Bush and his cabinet that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, that there's yellow cake uranium, that A, B, C, D, uh, blah, blah, blah. We saw that happen in real time. And we saw how uh, false it was. Yet these media companies were willing to lie us into a war or help lie us into a war, help uh, put us in a situation where we had 20 years of, of bombings in these countries where we killed a countless number of civilians, not to mention put uh, lost the lives of our own uh, men and women and, and, and soldiers who were willing to go over there and fight for, for a lie, for what amounts to a, a complete lie. Yet there was consensus around these things. There was consensus from the political class and from the media. And how did we get here? So uh, this concept has been explained uh, by Noam Chomsky many times. And, and this is at the time when he first described the concept of manufacturing consent, it was either in the 70s or the 80s. And he was talking more about mass media. Uh, so the CNNs, the Fox News, this, this whole ecosystem. He was talking more about that. But a lot of this still applies today. So I want to read a couple of snippets from uh, Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent just to to really uh, emphasize the point here, to really explain what he's trying to get at. So it starts, the mass media serve as a system for communicating messages and symbols to the general populace. It is their function to amuse, entertain, and inform, and to, and, 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 excuse me, and to inculcate individuals with the values beliefs, and codes of behavior that will integrate them into the institutional structure of the larger society. In a world of concentrated wealth and major conflicts of class interest, to fulfill this role requires systematic propaganda. In countries where the levers of power are in the hands of a state bureaucracy, the monopolistic control over the media, often supplemented by official censorship, makes it clear that the media serve the ends of a dominant elite. It is much more difficult to see a propaganda system at work where the media are private and formal censor censorship is absent. This is especially true where the media actively compete, periodically attack and expose corporate and governmental malfeasance, and aggressively portray themselves as spokesmen for free speech and the general community and the general community interest. What is not evident and remains undiscussed in the media is the limited nature of such critiques, as well as the huge inequality in command of resources and its effects both on access to a private media system and on its behavior and performance. So we'll stop there for a bit, but hopefully you're hearing what he's saying here, okay? 
this idea of how covert the propaganda is in a system where it looks like there's free speech. It looks like Fox News and MSN, MSNBC are all competing against each other. It looks like people sometimes do call out the government. Look, we discovered that George Santos lied about literally everything in his life, and it's hilarious, but we discovered this. So look, we're, we're doing the job. We're pointing out the truth. But that's what makes the level of propaganda in a system like this so sneaky is because what is not evident and remains undiscussed in the media is the limited nature of such critiques, as well as the huge inequality in command of resources and its effect both on access to a private media system and on its behavior and performance. That's the key. If you take anything away from this entire episode, take away that line, that part, that there's only a certain subset of messages which are allowed on the media, in the media sphere. There's a limited amount of critique you can have. You can critique, critique the political system, but oh, it better fall within the system of vote blue no matter who, or vote red or you'll be dead or whatever their, whatever their thing is, right? That's a critique of, oh, we're critiquing our political system, we're critiquing politicians, but the absence of any kind of discussion of a third option there, that's, that's the tell. It goes on. A propaganda model focuses on this inequality of wealth and power and its multi-level effects on mass media interests and choices. It traces the routes by which money and power are able to filter out the news fit to print, marginalize dissent, and allow the government and dominant private interests to get their messages across to the, the public. The essential ingredients of our propaganda model or set of news filters fall under the following headings. One, the size, concentrated ownership, owner wealth, and profit orientation of the dominant mass media firms. Two, advertising as the primary income source of the mass media. Three, the reliance of the media on information provided by government, business, and quote, experts funded by approved funded and approved by these primary sources and agents of power. Four, quote, flack as a means of disciplining the media. And five, quote, anti-communism as a national religion and control mechanism. These elements interact with and reinforce one another. The raw material of news must pass through successive filters leaving only the cleansed um, sorry leaving only the cleansed residue fit to print they fix the premises of discourse and interpretation and the definition of what is newsworthy in the first place and they explain the basis and operations of what amount to propaganda campaigns the elite domination of the media and marginalization of dissidents that results from the operation of these filters occurs so naturally that media news people, frequently operating with complete integrity and goodwill, 
are able to convince themselves that they choose and interpret the news objectively and on the basis of professional news values. I want to read that one more time just so we understand, okay? Because this is a big deal. This, this to me was my like mind blown, you know, Tim and Eric show. This was the moment to me, like, holy shit, holy shit. Um, But I'll read it again. The elite domination of the media and marginalization of dissidents that results from the operation of these filters occurs so naturally that media news people frequently operating with complete integrity and goodwill are able to convince themselves that they choose and interpret the news objectively and on the basis of professional news values. What's he saying? The people who end up being some of the biggest propagators and grifters don't even know they're doing it. Because the filtering process to get them there is so damn good. It it continues. Within the limits of the filter constraints, they often are objective. The constraints are so powerful and built into the system in such a fundamental way that alternative bases of news choices are hardly imaginable. In in assessing the newsworthiness of the U.S. government's urgent claims of a shipment of MIGs to Nicaragua on November 5th, 1984, the media do not stop to ponder the bias that is inherent in the priority assigned to government-supplied raw material or the possibility that the government might be manipulating the news, imposing its own agenda, and deliberately diverting attention from other material. It requires a macro alongside a micro, uh, story-by-story, view of media operations to see the pattern of manipulation and systemic bias. Now, look, there's a lot here that I can go over. Uh, There's a ton. We can get as much into the nitty-gritty of this as we want. But my goal here is to give people a, a broad overview of the topic and to give people a a little bit more of an understanding as to uh, why this is so dangerous and why it's happening now with people who look to be more quote unquote independent news media figures or people who are outside of the mainstream. So let's do the broad overview stuff first. Look, the first filter that's talked about here, right? Uh, and uh, where is it? The size, concentrated ownership, owner wealth, and profit orientation of the dominant mass media firms. Well, uh, Matt Taibbi talks a little bit about this in, in uh, ooh, what's his book again? Oh, shit. The one with, uh, you know what it is, MSNBC and uh, Fox News. Uh, he's got, someone will put it, Matt Taibbi, I don't know, uh, Matt Taibbi book. But he talks about the idea of like hate ink, that's it, hate ink. He talks about the idea of, look, uh, profit incentives incentivize you to create stories that are uh, uh, the most controversial, not necessarily the most controversial, but the most that are catered to make you 
sort of hate the other side or to uh, to keep you hooked, to get you going, to fire you up. So uh, as long as there's a profit incentive to creating that kind of news, people are going to create it. And it doesn't necessarily even need to be a profit incentive, right? It can be a viewership incentive. Steven Crowder wants to do that stupid shit that he does because he wants to attract an audience that is attracted to that. He wants to get outraged at certain things because, you know, that's what attracts an audience is outrage over certain things, over woke gender pronouns or whatever the fuck he's talking about. Why does Steven Crowder wear guns on his show? By the way, yeah, this guy wears guns, like a holster with like guns on his show. The biggest virtue signal, like imaginable. First of all, if you're wearing guns on like a fucking talk show, I'm just going to assume you're a big pussy. If I'm just being honest, like no offense to people who like guns. I get it. But like, okay, what's going to happen, dude? Someone's going to burst in and you're going to have to like get fucking robbed on your talk show. What are you doing? Like, there's no other reason to be doing that other than to virtue signal. But when the profit incentive or the incentive to get viewership, to get clout is to be ridiculous. Uh, if that's working, then that's what people are going to do. You know, people, uh, I think Vouch is a good example of this too. You know, that whole culture of people who are um, constantly trying to get viewership through uh, outrage to drive clicks. That's, uh, that's kind of where this falls into. Uh, but it's also the control that we talked about before, the Rupert Murdoch's, the Jeff Bezos, that filter system, which they have, of being able to be the last decider of what gets on their own network news is a big proponent of it. The second one is the advertising model. You know, the this is falling out a little bit, but it's still a thing. It's, you know, this idea that news is most of these news networks, to the extent that they were ever going to be profitable, don't even make money unless they have advertisers. So the people that they're constantly trying to appeal to, the stories that they're constantly trying to put on, and the priorities that they have are to uh, be able to attract a big enough audience and enough of an audience that falls within these things called key demographics. So these key demographics of people who consume certain products, they want to have a, uh, they want to be able to basically create programs and news that appeal to these key demographics so that they can then go to the news, uh, to these uh, advertisers and say, look, you can sell your depression pills to my audience because I have uh, 150,000 people ages 22 to I don't know, 45 who are watching at this time. So if you pay me money, you can sell them pills directly on my network. So if that's a big incentive of your programming, of your news reporting, then of course you're going to uh, prioritize whatever stories and whatever comes up that appeals to those key demographics so that you can sell that advertising space. So that's the second filter. The third filter is a big one today and a big reason why there's a lot of talk about fake news currently in mass media. And that's the reliance on the media, on information provided by the government, businesses, and experts who are funded 
and approved by government and businesses. This is the Iraq war profiteering. These, these are the people who came in as, uh, these are the people who, the government sources who, who leak confidential information specifically to reporters from an unnamed source so that they report on a story like it's true. Um, this is happening all the time. And it's happened, it, it's, it's to such a degree now that it's gotten out of control. And, you know, things like access journalism fall into this too, right? People who don't want to criticize certain political figures too much or certain departments, whether that be the CIA or the FBI or whatever, they don't want to uh, criticize them too much because they rely on those departments for information, for stories. You're a 24-hour news network, or you're a, you got to have news every day. You're selling to advertisers, right? You're selling, you, you're trying to make it a business. You're trying to get something out of it. You want your messages out there. Uh, you need people who have access to news. And some of the people who are the most in the know or should be the most in the know about things going on in the world are the people who work for the government in these various departments. I mean, who was, who were the first people to know that oh, Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda uh, were responsible for the attacks on the two towers. You think that was an individual investigative reporter? No, it was a government. Who was the first to know that Osama bin Laden was dead? The government. Who was supposed to report on those stories? The news. So if you're a news, uh, you know, you work for some kind of news, know, like paper or, or a network, and you need to break a story to get your numbers up, to sell to advertisers, and to make your boss who owns the newspaper happy that they got the most eyes on the news stories. Because again, if you got eyes on uh, one big news stories, one big breaking news story on your paper, that means that there are eyes on your paper or on your network, which means that all the stuff that the boss wants to say that's editorial or whatever gets more eyes on it too, because one of his reporters broke the story. But if you want to break the story, you better be real friendly with the Department of Defense, with the FBI, with whoever is planning and doing these raids or whatever. Uh, whoever in the government is running shit and could give you the story first. And they'll keep feeding you that information as long as you're a good little boy or girl. And you report it out. That's another filter. And that's that's how it works. I mean, like, how many of these panel shows and everything now do you see all these experts who are just putting out garbage? I mean, like, ask yourself this. How how How... How many networks do you see where the experts get on and they don't already know what they're going to say and they are, they're not responding to a question? They're just putting out a talking point, you know? And the talking point just happens to always fall within that left-right dichotomy of the, of the, of the news story that's been shaped already by the networks. And that is shaped in such a way to not offend advertisers and et cetera, et cetera. You see how all these things are, they, they play off of each other, how they're all related to each other. 
all of these filters, they, they work together, right? But when you see an expert on a subject and they can't even give like an opinion about, well, that may be possible or that may be true. They just have to give the opinion. No, it's this way. No, it's this way. And then you find out they're funded by the Heritage Foundation or by whoever the fuck, someone with another interest. You see how information becomes filtered. You see how news becomes not news, but propaganda. That is propaganda. I'm sorry, but like, that's that's the system, right? I'll get through these two other filters and then we'll we'll talk, but okay, so the fourth filter, we talked about the size and concentrated ownership of owner wealth. We talked about the second filter, which is advertising, its primary income. And again, this happens with independent news sources too. Just look at Alex Jones and the amount of shit that he sells on infowars.com. I'm selling, you know, corduroyed uh, tinfoil supplements that make your 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 ass not fat and your dick big i'm alex jones like that kind of shit this this all works these things still work for like current news networks and everything and like independent news people right so the size and concentrated ownership of uh dominant mass media firms advertising as a primary source of income the reliance of the media on information from the government and from quote unquote experts who are funded by primary sources and interested groups. The fourth filter is flack. So flack meaning like the people who step out of line, who are reporting on some real shit, you fucking give them the stick. You give them the stick. You make their lives hard. You make it difficult for them to report that real shit. And you have every one of your other journalism buddies dismiss them as a hack or as a fucking fraud or whatever else or whatever, right? And that's reinforcing. It's reinforcing. And who better has gotten more flack than Julian motherfucking Assange? Okay? Do you think that power wanted him to report what he was reporting on? No. They literally threw the full force of the law against him. This guy has been on the run basically now for 20 years. He's suicidal. He's in a jail cell in the UK about to come back to the United States and be extradited probably. For what? For showing the world what was actually going on in Iraq. With that fucking helicopter video. His, his crime here was actually reporting the actual news and the severity of the response with which he received should be a good indication to you that, oh, the government and these political corporatists did not want that story to be out there. They didn't want you to know the truth of what was actually happening there. These, like... People who report on things that the government doesn't want you to report on really get fucked over. Look at Edward Snowden. He's living in fucking Russia. Because he can't come back. Not because he wants to be there. What did he report on? He, he was a whistleblower. And said, look, uh, we're spying on you. The CIA has ridiculous amounts of spying capabilities. And they're spying on you while the CIA at the time was lying and saying they weren't spying on you. Okay? That was his crime. That was his crime in a country which specifically 
has laws on its books to protect whistleblowers. We have laws on the books in this country to protect people like Edward Snowden for doing exactly what he did, to protect people like Julian Assange for doing exactly what he did. And what happened? Those laws didn't mean shit. Because they went against the actual approved narrative. So when when Chomsky here is talking about how, uh, you know, how the elite domination of the media and marginalization of dissidents that results from the operation of these filters occurs so naturally that media news people frequently operating with complete integrity and goodwill are able to convince themselves that they chose or that they choose and interpret the news objectively and on the basis of professional news values. When, when Chomsky's talking about this, do you see how it works? Because the flack that these other people receive can literally destroy their lives. And I think about this too, to a lesser extent, sure. But with people like, you know, like, when you see people like Glenn Greenwald, and you can, look, you you are absolutely allowed to have your issues with Glenn Greenwald. And I think it would be negligent for us to just sit here and pretend like this boy don't have some sass on him on Twitter, okay? <laughs> like, sometimes he's a little spicy. He's a little spicy, you know? He's been living in Brazil. He's got some flavor now, okay? <laughs> but, like, he is, uh, and sometimes he's, like, like shitty. Like, some, some of his opinions are just bad. But, man, the amount of shit he gets, even from institutional journalists, after being one of the only people at the time who was like super against the wars, who helped Edward Snowden, who helped Chelsea Manning get the story out. That's flack. And that helps manufacture the narratives and shape the bounds of what is an approved narrative. And then finally, the final filter after flack the final filter for manufacturing consent, which I think even applies today, is anti-communism as a national religion and control mechanism. Let's talk about Greenwald, talk about Assange, talk about Snowden, talk about anyone. Like, how many times have you heard, like, someone that, uh, you know, the media doesn't like or that politicians don't like, how many times do you hear them just called a communist? Think about it. How how ubiquitous, ooh, that's a big word, ubiquitous. But how ubiquitous is that, is the insult of calling someone a communist in America even today? Like how, how that is such a common insult insofar that it's even used, it's mostly used against people who are nothing even near communists. But they'll say, oh, you're a communist, you're a Putin puppet, which, you know, Putin's puppet, Russia, all this stuff that, all these insults that are meant to evoke this, like, well, you're an anti-American. The fact that you are trying to accurately report news or call out power or hold truth to power or speak truth to power, 
the fact that all of those are communist acts, according to, you know, how news networks and and, then billionaires manufacture consent, like, that's a little bit of a tell. Because they also need to associate the idea of being unpatriotic with communism, something that directly challenges their power structure and their power. Uh, there is no one who needs communists. Well, I'll put it this way. Billionaires and the people who control industry and the media need you. They need you to not want to be called a communist. And I'm not just saying that from like, um, I'm not just saying that because I'm not even a fucking communist. I don't know why I am. I'm, uh, who cares? Right? I know people need health care. I know people deserve better, more of their uh, the fruits of their labor. People should be in houses. People should have some fucking heat on right now because it is cold as shit in my house. But that's what I'm saying. It's like no one needs you to be or no one billionaires need everybody to feel like being a communist or being called a communist is the ultimate insult. And so does the government. It helps them. They need that. They need that mindset because even if the insult doesn't make sense, even they'll call people who aren't communists communists because they, they, want to degrade the person and also degrade the term communism because they can't let that term pick up because it's, it's antithetical to their power structure. It directly challenges it. So even when you hear these stories in the news and everything, you, it, 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 there's a reason for that. There's a reason why this anti-communist set, sentiment continues today. There's a reason why and and look, when we look at independent media, which again, jeez, uh, I, I, I'm going to wrap up here because uh, I'd like to talk to some people and 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 get stuff going. But and I think I think most of us we kind of get the point from here. I hope I've been clear enough. But but I, I really want to emphasize this this connection between like mass media, which Chomsky was talking about at the time, like this mass corporate media and this independent media sphere today. So there's been a lot of distrust and mistrust now in networks like Fox News and CNN and MSNBC, and rightfully so, right? Rightfully so, because these are institutions which have been following this. They've been manufacturing consent for a long time. But billionaires are smart, not individually, but in the same way corporations are smart in that there is a, they have enough resources and enough people interested in protecting those resources that they end up more or less acting to protect their profits. And today in a media sphere where independent, quote unquote, independent individual voices are more trusted 
where more and more people are disgusted with the the mass media networks and are turning to alternative sources to get their news, billionaires are recognizing this. And they're turning to people like Steven Crowder and like Ben Shapiro who still have that veneer, that vusqua, that orepu of independence, the illusion of independence, the illusion of, of being outside the mainstream, man. But they're turning to them and they're paying them billions and millions of dollars to do the same shit that they were paying CNN and MSNBC and Fox News to do. They're repeating it. Because you know what? They still need some motherfuckers out there who are saying, oh, you're a communist. They need people out there who are saying, but the free market principles. These motherfuckers talk about a free market while being part of a rigged one. Steven Crowder is not worth that money, objectively. He ain't fucking worth that motherfucking money. Ben Shapiro's not worth that money, but they're worth it. And their only way they're worth it is insofar as their narratives protect the billionaire class, protect the assets. Jeff Bezos loses money with the Washington Post, but why buy it? Because it keeps you and keeps all these other people from having a news, uh, from open news. It keeps shaping a message that stops people from like revolting. <laughs> you know, that's what it is. It's like, um, what's that song? What is it? I swear there's a song. Let me see. But, uh, uh, well, there is one. There is one. Yeah, it's a Prince song. Okay, and I'm trying to read the lyrics now. Because I don't know how much of these lyrics actually actually uh, make sense. But what the billionaires are doing, this is what popped into my head, right? Why do they need Steven Crowders? Why are they paying them $50 million? Why are they paying Ben Shapiro's? Why are they doing it? There's a, there's a concept that I was thinking called pussy control. The song, the Prince song, he's got a song called pussy control. Okay. And I'm, I don't remember these lyrics, but... I just know there's one that says, no prostitute she, but the mayor of your brain, pussy control. Ah, pussy control. Oh, ah, pussy control. Oh, billionaires are just doing pussy control. Manufacturing consent is basically the idea of them exercising an astounding degree of pussy control. And Steven Crowder and Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire and all of these news, uh, all these new media people are the next iteration of pussy control. 
Alex Jones has kind of shown his ass a lot more than other people, but that's what this is. That's what this honestly is. And it makes me wonder, though, too, because there are there's a wider conversation to be had here, too. And maybe some of you will call in to have it. But I, I, I wonder. I do wonder what happens to the independent media sources who are not as subject to this. Uh, to the pussy control, if you will, they're not funded by billionaires. They're not as controlled as to what they what stories they choose and what they pick, but they are dependent on uh, creating news for income, creating content. While that's happening, they don't have the same sort of institutional uh, uh, access that these mass media networks have and that some people have, right? The Ben Shapiro's of the world. Uh, but I do wonder, is there, is there a risk of some of these independent creators, you know, the people who are more like, uh, you know, Brianna Joy Gray or, or uh, Jimmy Dore, they're going to fall victim to some of these risks, right? If your income is dependent on, is dependent on creating content that has to do with like some kind of news or informing people or political slant or something like that. Look, you may not be as susceptible or as controlled. You're not nearly as controlled or susceptible as, uh, you know, the Ben Shapiro's, the Candace Owens, um, trying to find the Rachel Maddow's, right? Uh, But there are certain stories which do not have the same kind of appeal or the same kind of broad ability to get people to consume content, but which are fucking crucial. They're crucial stories. They're stories that we should be talking more about. They're stories, frankly, I should be talking more about. But the thing is, I'm a big dum-dum who's trying to figure all this shit out too. And I only have so many hours in the day. And it's, you know, the the kind of on-the-ground kind of reporting that we would want requires some aspect of 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 funding and i just i I worry that are we all just going to be talking about the same shit on twitter that comes up or something that ends up being a mass appealed subject because you know someone needs a check and someone thinks or it doesn't even need to be that someone needs a check it could be like look someone saw that this was potentially interesting and that people were interested in it and wanted to do something, or maybe they're genuinely interested on it. But again, does that create a media environment again, which filters, which has filters that occur so naturally that these new media news people, even the ones that aren't controlled, will be operating again with complete integrity and goodwill and be able to convince themselves that they choose and interpret the news objectively and on the basis of professional news values. Like, isn't that crazy when you think about it? This idea that the, the, the universe of even reportable or worthwhile news, even without some of these corporate constraints, can be dominated and controlled again.
is that what happens with a mass social media environment? I don't know. But I do know that, like, and this will be the last thing I say, because then I want to talk to Andrew uh, and whoever else wants to call in. But, like, you know, it's a very good point. All media is controlled. All media has filters. But this, the, the, the filters which I'm most worried about now are they're not even necessarily interested in news at all. You know, they're the, the filters of Twitter the filters of Instagram, the filters of TikTok. These algorithms that are purely just profit-driven, which create, I don't know, like things, they need something to trend. You know? And part of the problem with this trending thing is it's kind of like the problem with having a diet that would just be based on like delicious junk food is it's high octane oh it's good but your body's not getting the nourishment it needs and to some extent news to a large extent should be about like nourishment really getting you what you fucking need you should be able to like you should have some like asparagus in your news you know should have some brussels sprouts and not just like the really good grilled with some Parmesan, some vinaigrette Brussels sprouts, but like every once in a while, you just got to eat that sprout, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like some boiled sprouts, some of the stuff that you don't want, but that is good to really understand and know that helps you function in the world, that informs you, that makes you a better person, a better citizen, a better human being. And I don't know, I'm worried about that aspect of, 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 of mass media too. But, you know, if you wanted to know why uh, Steven Crowder was offered $50 million, eh, you should kind of know now. The messages, the stuff that he puts out there, it's stuff that people who could afford to lose $50 million want you to hear. That's the kind of shit they want you to hear. It's the kind of shit they want to put out there. And that should get anyone pause. Fuck you, Steven Crowder. <laughs> okay, let's go ahead and take some calls. Um, Andrew, what's going on, man? How you doing? Hey, bud. I'm doing pretty good. Eating some fucking quesadillas, dude. Hell yeah, dude. Quesadillas. I bet you have great quesadillas down there in Mexico, so you, you got the real thing. Definitely the corn is better. So the corn yeah. is way better, so everything made out of corn is better. So, yeah. 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 I... Man, I was going to start off with a joke, and I totally forgot I was going to do it, and I kind of ruined my timing, so I'll, I'll, I'll weave it in later. But Okay, sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say about the, the mass like social media networks, that was the kind of the first thing that came to mind, and also about the indie media sphere. I don't know if you've seen um, the reporting. I think it oh, – what's his name? Kit Clarenberg. He started working for the Gray Zone um, recently. He now runs like the Gray Zone UK. Uh-huh. He has done some really interesting reporting off of leaked documents from the Home Office, which kind of like the UK's um, FBI. And they had been funding a number of bread tubers. So for those who don't know, bread tube is like, you know, popular indie left uh, YouTube media or online media. It's like new media 
And there's been a lot of speculation for a while from numerous people that, yeah, thanks, Terry. Abigail Thorne was one of the more prominent ones who was um, named in these leaks as receiving a lot of money from the home office. And really? um, From the home office specifically. So yeah. Abigail Thorne, that was uh, known as Philosophy Tube online. Um, that's right. That's the name, of, the name of her channel. But keep going. Yeah, and, and it's pretty clear, like, we don't have the extent of who's being funded by the home office. But it's definitely a longer list than the, the few people that – and I'll, I'll post a link in a minute in the chat here so people can see this article from Kit. But it's it's definitely showing, like, um, you know, there's numerous things that you talked about just from Chomsky's own work. And there's uh, there's other things that we can observe in our lives if we're paying attention to show that the – the biggest value of these media organizations is not their monetary profits. Um, and I think, um, I think KDOT and I kind of said it about the same time, like the monetary value is not the only form of value. And Twitter is another excellent example of that. I mean, if, if, we've, if anyone's been paying attention to the Twitter files releases, particularly from Matt Taibbi and others, um, you know, government agencies, companies, have spent a lot of time and money and effort to control the ecosystem of Twitter. Who's who gets to get oxygen and sunlight and water on Twitter is not exactly. a, a open free marketplace. And Twitter is another company that has never op operated on a profit. It's always been operating at a loss. And so that's kind of interesting. One of the things that Elon Musk is trying to do is just monetize every interaction on Twitter to make it profitable. Because it just hasn't been this whole time, and and you know I think like it's pretty clear that algorithmic um, monkey business is totally not over on Twitter. I mean now I see way more kind of centrist right or centrist lefty, you know whatever Democrats and Republicans on my feed instead of giving them direction, you know a compass directions, I'll just say what they are. They're Democrats and Republicans, and I'm seeing way more of them than I want. I'm not, you know, I'm not following any of these people. I don't give a shit what they have to say, really. Um, right. And it's very clear, like, there, there's so much more value in the social control um, or in the, in the value of having a monopoly that it's worthwhile to lose money to build up that monopoly on information or production or distribution or something. Um, anyway, I'll pause for a sec. What are your thoughts? No, I think, I think that's, Hundred percent correct, and and you know I don't know too much about the the Abigail Thorne or uh, the funding of YouTubers and BreadTubers to shape the messaging, but I would say, why wouldn't they do that? If look, if the idea is to continue to make the system as it is, then if you can manufacture consent then why would you not also manufacture dissent or what looks like dissent in the ways that you want it to uh, come out? And that's what makes it scary. You know, one of the reasons uh, or the main reason I'm really against um, a lot of monopolies, I mean, monopolies in general, uh, against corporations becoming too powerful, against uh uh, you know, or for socialism is because uh, you, no one man can have all that power because to the extent that you can be an Elon Musk 
and shape the narratives around Twitter, even if you shape them in a way that might be more fair, even if you think, oh, Elon got on there and now it's more fair. He unbanned people. He did whatever. Uh, Those are not decisions that long-term I feel comfortable being in the hands of one person. Because, you know, like, even if all he's doing on there is protecting his ego, even if that was all he's doing, is that okay? Like, should that be okay? I, I would say no. Yeah. I say that's that's uh, that's a bad way to build a system that is supposed to be based off of giving everyone a voice in a society and giving everyone a say in society. Uh, so I, I just think those things are antithetical to each other. They're They're in conflict. Yeah, hundred percent. I feel like the that's a whole other many episodes like economic democracy. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, completely lacking in the United States. You there's there's the vast majority of workplaces, which is where you are obligated to spend most of your time, unless you're independently wealthy, you have no democracy there. There's no um, you know, community say in whether or not Lafarge concrete can dump their you know, byproducts into the forest or the river where they operate or Boeing, um, they have enough money to just pay off every single part of the system that they need. Um, and those systems do, are not built and monitored to have integrity. So they're, they're able to exercise, you know, the greatest degree of power and say in society just because of money. So I think like, um, not just straight monetary take from, you know, somebody above, above, you know, $30 million, you take 80% of every next million dollars until the, all the rest of the money they make, they just are only going to get 20% of the, the profits after that point. Like that's, that's a start. I think that more so than the money, we should be focused on resources, resource sovereignty, yeah. but I view it like just watering the fields, right? Like if you have an area that has a drought and a valley over, there's plenty of water. Where do you think there's going to be more plants growing in the drought valley or the valley with water? Right. Maybe you could put some water in the, the place where there's a drought, but go ahead. Where were you? You know, I'm, I, I've heard some people, especially on this call in, uh, talk about the need for, building out a an alternative uh like uh, eco structure or infrastructure for for uh publishing articles and stories and 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 content and and news uh how we need to build that out to to put something out there that is not uh that doesn't have to go through these filters and i agree with that it's very difficult for us to do in practice because the outsized influence that money has on power, you know, if, if you can, I mean, really we could fund a all volunteer force that was putting out news stories that we thought people actually needed to know. Uh, was putting out content that would be uh, that would otherwise be 
excluded from any other media because it was uh, too dissident of the current power structure. But the more you think about doing that, the the more we have to face the realities or the 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 powers that exist within our current structure, which would disable that, which would which would really cripple that. And those are things like if you have an all volunteer force, well, people eventually have to be working and getting a job. They can only dedicate so much time, so many resources, so much strength and power towards this publication. Well, if you're going to pay people, okay, you can pay people, but that means you have to have some kind of income. And a lot of your messages are going to be resonating the most with people who do not have uh, income to spend on a publication who cannot subscribe to what you're putting out there. Yeah. Okay. So you can't do that or you, you try to do that. And even if you're trying to do that, the reality also is that the messages you're going to be contending against are coming from people and institutions and elites who can afford to pay Steven Crowder $50 million over the course of four years with no skin off their nose. <laughs> I was imagining 50 that in Dr. Evil's voice. I, I, you know, I, I, you know, like 50 million. I, I wish I could do it like $50 million. But when you that think about bad. it, like why, why does this like, if people can throw around, uh, you know, fifty million like it's like it's chump change, and spending it on talent that is mediocre at best, like that's a problem. That's a problem. Like your system has fundamental flaws to it. If though, if if that's how it's quote unquote working, and it kind of you know it's kind of related, but not really. But 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 there's. Uh, I don't know if you, you you've watched a lot of YouTube or anything like that, but uh, do you know who Mr. Beast is? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I've, well, he put out a um, uh, a video the other day, a couple days ago, where uh, well, for those of you who don't know, Mr. Beast is this like big YouTuber who he I think he's the biggest YouTuber. He has a whole bunch of subscribers across a whole bunch of channels. I think something like when you total up all of his channels, he's got over a billion subscribers, which is insane. What the hell? Really? I thought it was yeah. like a hundred million. So he has a hundred million on his main channel, 130 or 140 million on his main Jesus channel, but he has Christ. a bunch of other channels in different languages. Yeah. Specifically to Spanish language. Pro or yeah. Channels. He he's, He's like a he's just he's obsessed with YouTube and gets a lot of, you know, whatever. But his main thing he does is he has these little competitions and like gives away a bunch of money and stuff like that. But he had one a couple of days ago and actually Breaking Points did a I think Crystal did a report on this on Breaking Points. But uh, he had one a couple of days ago where it's, um, you know, usually his videos would be like, I give ten thousand dollars away to ten students about to go to college or uh, whoever can beat me in a race gets this new Tesla. He did one the other day, which was, I cure 1,000 people of blindness. <laughs> and what he did is he paid for the surgeries 
to remove some kind of like, uh, I don't know, some kind of lens clouding from 1,000 different people. And is it awesome that he removed the blindness from 1,000 people? Yes. Excellent. Amazing. But in a system that allowed that kind of blindness to occur in the first place without treatment, that's a little dystopian. Yeah, and you have to enter a game show. Like, it's yeah. that is not very different from the people in the UK right now who can't afford to heat their heat their houses and they are like potentially winning on a game show three months of heating. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And it, it, it's it's this thing, you know, it's this idea that like, you know, with like connecting it back to the to the news networks and the manufacturing of consent, it's this, look, I don't want to take anything away from someone who's doing charity, but there's two big problems with this that, that really irk me. It has nothing against Mr. Beast as a person or as a YouTuber. From all accounts, he seems, seems like a really solid guy or whatever, right? But like the idea, one, that 1,000 people's blindness being cured only came down to one individual's whim. Yeah. One filter that they had to go through and the filter just happened to do like something nice. That's a big problem. And then the other big problem is what we said before, the fact that the system as it occurs would be, had let that many people go blind for that long. Mm -hmm. for something that amounts to a very curable blindness. And when we think of media, like, yeah, sure, maybe once in a while, one of these guys or one of these people who owns a media company or who owns, a, a, you know, a, even someone like a Ben Shapiro or something puts a story out that's like, oh, this is really important. This is great. This actually challenges power. But it comes down to that one individual's whim. And then the infrastructure is not there for actual dissident media to be able to thrive because they don't have no monies. Yeah. I mean like the people who would be the most willing and in many cases able to call out the abuses of powerful people are the people who are getting screwed the hardest by powerful people and yeah. just definitionally don't have any time or money or resources to make that happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was, um, shit, there were two other things I was going to say. One, I do remember I'll tell it, first so in um in mexico where i live where my parents-in-law live um there was a guy in the local government like in the municipal government who he basically for years has been kind of like the the mafia's point man in that municipality where he he has enough control over the actions of the local police um, and the, you know, some other funds and, and sort of checks and balances that the municipality can exercise. And he let the mafia in, in a pretty, in a bigger way recently. Right. And he, about a week ago, um, his family reported him or somebody reported him missing. And then he was found like, two uh, municipalities over dead, like shot. And then his car had been like rolled down a, a hill. And 
immediately the so okay i gotta give a little bit more background to this so morena is amlo's party they're a new party they have upset the political balance in mexico they've um you know been really like rooting out the cartels at the state levels and rooting out a lot of corrupt other bullshit going on and investing in you know they just built a new oil refinery they're building like high-speed rail and stuff trying to invest in the economy etc they're trying to kind of turn things around right and there's another there's the two or three older parties that are more like you could just compare them to the republicans and democrats more or less there's pre pan and the prd then there's these new parties because similarly to like how the home office or whoever are investing in new media um because the old media is no longer valuable. It doesn't have any credibility in the eyes of the people, so they have to invest in new media to get a foothold in. So there's a newer-ish party called uh, the Citizens Movement, Movimiento Ciudadano. And they're, you know, they're just like the old parties, but they have younger faces, better advertising, etc. They don't have an old track record of stealing as much public funds as they possibly could all the time. And so the mayor of this municipality, she was running under the citizens movement. And then basically right when she was getting elected and winning, she switched to Morena. She didn't consult with Morena or Movimiento Ciudadano. And the local citizens movement people beat her into a coma. But she's still the mayor. But she's like really feckless. Like she doesn't really – she's not negotiating with anybody She's not doing you know, any type of public outreach. She's probably just doing what she would have done if she was a part of the citizens' movement or pre or whatever other party. She's probably pocketing a little money here and there. Um, but as soon as this guy um, gets killed, the assessor – no, he's not the assessor. I can't remember what um, – she's not in a coma anymore, T-1000. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not shitting on a person who's has tubes down their throat for not doing their job. Don't, don't stress. Nah, shit on her. (laughs) I'll shit in the tube, bro. I don't give a fuck. (laughs) So as soon as this guy, um, is found dead in his car, immediately some local kind of right wing newspapers and a bunch of the people who beat the living shit out of this mayor, um, immediately start printing articles and saying things on social media saying, oh, yeah, this is what happens when uh, you cross Morena. They just kill you. Um, and this this guy was not a part of Morena. He was not ever communicating with them. He was doing his own thing, making money with the cartels. And every, the speculation is that he let the cartels in and then regretted it because they've been doing some pretty fucked shit around town before this. And... Um, so he's dead now, and immediately his his death is being used as a as a you know target practice to attack Morena because they are actually rooting the cartels out. They're rooting the mafia out of the state just next door to us, which is partially why the mafia is getting more active here, is because they're losing a foothold to the west, so they're coming over here where they have more help from particular government individuals. Yeah. And to me, this um, this gets at another thing that Noam Chomsky um, does not look at as much. Overall, I think manufacturing consent is like far and away the best um, breakdown ever of the, the, the system of media in the United States. How does it work? Why does it work that way? 
And I think that Noam's uh, contribution is incredible there because it, it provides an understanding of, well, how could somebody believe that they're telling the truth and mislead the public on a regular basis? And that's right. super valuable right. information. Yeah. How could somebody who uh, believes they're doing all the right things for all the right reasons still be contributing to what amounts to propaganda? Totally. And I, I think that the only place I, – I, I tend to overall like Michael Parenti more than um, hmm. Noam Chomsky when it comes to just like commentary on particular historical issues, like on an issue-by-issue basis. I like Parenti better. And he, he had a book called um, Inventing Reality that also dealt with media bias. But he spent, I think, far too much time um, – where he's where he is better, but where it made for a worse book um, on individual issues. But I think the one thing that Parenti did better was he showed he he showcased some some issues where. Oh, hold on. Hey, are you still there? Yep, I'm here. Sorry, some uh, Bluetooth thing connected to my phone. A- anyways, um, Parenti in his book he does a the one thing I think he does a definitely better job is he's showing issues where. There's clear evidence, un- incontrovertible evidence, of a coordinated campaign in the media. It wasn't just that um, – uh, what's the uh, guy who looks like a thumb who was on CNN forever and then he just lost his job? <laughs> Brian Stelter? Yeah, Brian Stelter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, he does look like the, a thumb though. <laughs> he looks like he a thumb with like some fungus around his cuticle or something, dog. But he um, – <laughs> He like it does. The media is not just only full of Brian Stelters. There's also people in the media who are having meetings on the regular with intelligence officials, or in many cases, are intelligence officials. I mean, you can go and read about Project Mockingbird. This is where the CIA yep. had a formal uh, network of people in media that was exposed in the '70s under the Church and Pike committees, um, and that still, I mean, 100% still exists. There's also oh, – I'm trying to remember. I'll post his name. He's a, uh, another sort of like uh, – he's kind of like the Ray McGovern of a generation or two ago. I want to say his name's John Stockdale, but that seems like it's wrong. But he, um, he's got a mustache, glasses, and he gave some interviews about how the, um, the, the CIA in the 70s was working against Cuba in Africa. What was Cuba doing in Africa? Well, Cuba in the 70s in Africa was fighting the South African apartheid forces who were starting to conquer other countries like Namibia, Botswana, and most importantly, Angola. That was kind of like the the really crucial um, logistical area and also like as far as momentum, if, if uh, Angola had fallen to apartheid forces entirely, then – probably most of Africa or at least the southern half up to the you know the cape would have and and this guy was talking about how they had all these interesting ways of getting around um the very weak laws that prevent you from propagandizing the American public and he said we would have um an article written and published the first time in Nigeria and the article would would fabricate a story where it would say Cuban forces raped a bunch of um Angolan women and we had no evidence for any of this, but we would get that published in Nigeria. And then uh, we had we'd have our contacts in in French media, like in France 24 or Figaro or wherever, pick that story up and republish it in the French media. 
then we'd have our contacts in the U.S. media pick that story up from France and bring it into the United States. And it's like there's so many different ways that can be – that is happening all the time. And it, yeah. it, this is what I'm immediately reminded of when I see like four little newspapers print with almost identical language the story about this guy um, getting murdered by the mafia. Yeah, And sure. they're like, this is – here's how we're going to use this story. I mean it's very clear to me from the – reading the articles, from the headlines, from the sort of catchy phrases within the, the meat of the article – um, that this, there was a meeting <laughs> and, uh, and to me that is, it's like equally as scary because not oh, only yeah. are there a bunch of people who, well, go ahead. What were you going to say? No, no, I, I, please finish. I'm just agreeing a hundred percent. Yeah. No, not only, not only are there, um, you know, a bunch of people who are in the media who are, unfortunately they lack the the lens on their vision that they would need to smell some serious bullshit that they are literally wading neck deep in all the time. They don't smell that. They don't even notice that it's there. Um, yeah. And that's scary. It's also, I think just as scary how much control there is over the media. Okay. Okay. I just remembered my other, like, like, um, 11 out of 10 good point. Um, but I don't, I've been talking for like three minutes. So like, First, do you want do you want to talk like planted stories versus, um, you know, I guess what would we call Brian Stelter esque bungling uh, coverage? Right. right. The 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 coordinated stories versus uh, stories that are not necessarily coordinated, but the response forms some sort of loose coordination which supports the official uh, goals of power. Or, you know, supports the needs or, you know, interests of power. Um, yeah. And I know I, 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 I think I would like to hear it, but I do I do have to cut this episode short at some point tonight. Um, can you give us a Sparks Notes version, Andrew? Dude, yeah, I got you. I have been talking a lot recently about what I think is the reality that rhetoric might be the least effective way to persuade people of something. Wait, are you still hmm. there or am I frozen? Okay, I'm here. Sorry. I'm here. Sometimes the app looks frozen. Um, yeah. And this is why, like, I kind of feel like a lot of indie media projects right now, they're pretty big right now. And they do, they do have a very valuable effect. I mean, if you don't have the money and resources to go and report on the ground a bunch of stories and then get them, you know, like recovered and syndicated elsewhere so that people can learn about them. One of the other, like, next best things you can do if you're just focusing on media would be to, uh, re you know, report on the other news and try to show people and, like, guide them. I don't want to say hold their hand because it sounds patronizing, but guide them through the process of, of putting on the lens they need to see that. But ultimately, I think that we need to stop focusing on how can we build a mass movement by by getting people woke, basically, and I mean the old school woke, like woken up to their actual surroundings and realize the news is fake, et cetera. Right. You know, the government is, is almost always lying, and if they're not, they're still being shady and making money somehow. And and how do you, you know, how can we do that with a media campaign? It, it's like, how, or like with some of the uh, climate activists I used to work with or that are still doing their thing are like, if we just have the perfect 
protest that gets just the right news coverage where we look like the right, you know, the righteous right, victims. Right. Everybody will wake up eventually and immediately drop whatever else that they're doing and join us. Well, it turns out people can't do that. A bunch of people aren't even going to see your protest. And a bunch of the people that are going to see your protest, even if they agree with you, are not going to have the time, money, and energy, and food, and water, and childcare, and everything else to go and help you if they wanted to. 100%. And so I'm all about, um, at this point, like conversion or whatever, building a, a mass understanding and, <laughs> and movement primarily through deeds, which you used that word deeds a second ago, and I think that that's, um, it needs a little more use. Dust that word yeah. off, get it off the shelf. Um, yeah. And also Fidel Castro uh, cured 4 million people's blindness in the second poorest country in the Americas, and he didn't have to have as much money as Mr. Beast. Thank you, Bide. You have an excellent show. And I'll cut Andrew, myself off there. Excellent, as always. <laughs> I'm always impressed by the breadth and depth of your knowledge. Uh, always a pleasure to but have I gotta you. I got to say again, buddy, uh, your show convinced me to do a show. Um, and I feel like um, I'm not going to forget that shit. And, uh, yeah, I'll I'll be in touch, man. You do a, you do an excellent job. I, it's Bro, high sure. praise from you. For sure. Well, oh, Well, oh. Now I feel like Andrew's my child. Andrew, I'm your father, boy. Come on. Go ahead and do your show and make your daddy proud. Okay. All right, we got Peter. Peter, <laughs> welcome back to the Fred Hampton Inn Suites. How you doing? Good evening. Kudos to you, Byte. You know, as a practicing okay. attorney, what you're doing, you know, just give me a lot of, uh, you know, just a lot of, cost a lot of admiration, you know. Uh, Thanks, man. Thanks. I love no. I love what you're doing too, man. I I I think uh, it's not often you you find people who are as passionate about the law and different cases as as you are, especially uh, American jurisprudence. So, uh, oh, that uh, that's special. That's about American. That's correct. America, yeah. not other countries. Yes, it's right. very special here. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I I can hear your frustration, and uh, I want to kind of. Uh, uh, puts things in a bigger, uh, uh, perspective. Just, I think things are actually getting better. Uh, mm-hmm. uh despite the fact, you know, what you're talking about, it is uh, outrageous and all that. So I want to, uh, brought up the name Ida B. Wells, who is a investigative uh, journalist back in the very, very old days, old lynching days, when the mainstream media are all white medias. She covers Nothing, uh, she covers one thing that extremely important. It's called the mm-hmm. white mob violence against black, called the lynching, yeah. right? Yeah. She had, I read her statistics. She does statistics. You know, she literally is running by her, on her legs to do investigative journalism, right? Regardless what the mainstream media, the white media is talking about so-called crime against white women, uh, by the blacks. So that's, and today we are better. Our media generally, you know, in other words, before the smartphone ever comes out, uh, before the smartphone, the media have to believe whatever the police uh, wrote in their reports about their law enforcement activities. Today we have smartphones. We, the people, can surveil the police. That has happened many, many times. You know, we convict bad cops, not because they write an honest report, because they lied on the report. And we have a video exactly. to prove it, exactly. right? Yeah. 
So, so that's domestic area. On a global perspective, from the deep state, the war machine perspective, I still believe this. At the end of the day, whatever Fox News or CNN cook up whatever shit to feed to, to Americans, eventually the battle is won militarily. So for all the BS the mainstream media produced by, you know, assisted by CIA, FBI, whoever you, you want to name them, eventually the Vietnamese have to win the battle on right. the battleground, right? right. The, they have to kill enough white soldiers to send them in body bags home to America. Then the people will say, now we are enraged. Now we are going to do whatever. And it's the same thing today. Whatever the mainstream media put up, including the alternative media, like the guy Stephen Quarrow, but by the way, he's a Canadian and uh, not even American as far as I'm concerned. Uh, whatever they can come up with, the outcome of the Ukraine war still will be decided militarily. They can, you know, you can have a 1,000 Brian uh, a Stouter, whatever that fat pig uh, name is. Because I actually was the reason I was being seriously thinking about like uh, following what uh, Ida B. Wells did, uh, yeah. do an investigative uh, reporting on white privilege in journalism. Mm. You know, because it is the white narratives in this country, always. So going oh, back yeah. to the, again, Go ahead, that's sorry. what power. That's what power has been concentrated around, right? Is yep. is mm -hmm. to a large extent like white wealthy landowners, uh, specifically male landowners. That that's that's been uh, that goes all the way back to our country's roots, right? So it makes yep. sense that that would be a lot of where a lot of that privilege has has gone to for our country's history. Um, yeah, they they got the power to shape the narratives, right? Whether it's yeah. managed manufactured or not, it's you know it's all, you know it's all it's, you know they have their hands behind the scene and all that, and uh, yeah. they can they can have their Uncle Tom's uh, on the screen, but the the narratives is written and controlled by them. So, but the good news is that I do believe is that on the on the on the global perspective. You know, the U.S. never send uh, new, uh, the news journal in the, I mean, the, the media in this country never send a journalist to North Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Right. Today, they never send a reporter to the battleground on the Russian side because right. they have their relatives, uh, narratives written already. Right. And you don't, you, you, you disagree, the deep state will going to come after you. So I, but I think from what I heard, uh, the militarily speaking, I think, uh, the, the, the outcome is pretty much set. It's not about, uh, it's not, the question is not if or whether, it's about when, uh, the, uh, the whole thing is going to be, you know, come to a conclusion. So I hope, you know, you will not be too uh, depressed with uh, this arrangement, like the Brooklyn arrangement. Not. <laughs> so, I'm not. And I, I, I appreciate that optimism, honestly, Peter. I, I'll say, you know, I think we're at a critical point, though, in there. It feels very contradictory to sort of be where we're at right now, right? Because I, I really do agree with you that in a lot of ways, 
it has gotten better just because it's gotten harder to control. It's gotten less yep. centralized. You know, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. filming officers with your phone is a possibility now because now the, I, you know, cameras are not as centralized in, in the control of just the officers themselves. It's the same with the news to, to the extent that there are now alternative people, alternative voices, which couldn't really uh, survive without institutional support support before uh, they can now survive without institutional support. That's a win. We should take that. But I do worry because what I see are a confluence of, of factors like social media, like the increasing uh, permissibility of corporate control of information on social mm -hmm. media. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, just things like that algorithms as, as things to decide what is seen and what doesn't get seen and who, uh, who is favored and what messages are favored in those algorithms. Mm -hmm. Those all look like choke points that are redeveloping. Oh yeah. I'm not, back. Oh, you're right. I'm not just uh, one thing I want to do. Uh, you'll remind me something. I actually believe this is an important point. Did you notice is that all these, the uh, Twitter file, all the politician is pointing fingers at each other and all that, but it's actually both the Republican and Democrats both yeah, are supported that this is Section uh, Two Thirty, right? It's yeah. it's the lawmakers authorized the media company to control to to do to, to control the content without any liability, without uh, on infringement of the First Amendment rights. Yeah, right. Exactly. They they create it. They can point fingers to Republican. Republican can do the reverse. But actually, they are the one took away the people's rights under the yeah. First Amendment. Yeah, they they both shit on the floor, and now they're both pointing to the other one, saying, "Hey, you shit on the floor." It's like, nah, it's we, <laughs> yeah. it, the floor is covered in shit because we were both doing it. But that's yeah. I, I but I I take your point too that that like look the even some of the narratives around the control of information and who controls what information are people trying to shape the narratives of who uh, controls information as opposed to uh, them being willing to acknowledge that they're both controlling information. And that kind of being out there is, uh, it kind of makes them both look like they got mud on their face. Yep. yep. Totally. Or in this case, thanks, thanks again. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Peter, always, always love to have you, man. Thank you, sir. Um, and Peter's got a great show uh, called Judicial White Privilege. It's on Sunday mornings uh, on Colin. Uh, definitely check it out. Uh, next caller, Jenny. Hey, welcome. Welcome back. Long time no talk. How you been? Good. Your show hits right in the middle of the dinner hour. So I had to bail and run and then I came back. So <laughs> I'm glad you Sorry about that. Call. Yeah. No, I missed half, yeah. half of your monologue, but the first part was great. So Brian Stelter was just brought into the World Economic Forum as a disinformation expert, ran a panel. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. Really? He was a disinformation expert? Yes, it was so funny. That and, you is, know, we call, we call him a guys. potato. He looks like a potato. I've he never heard the, like the thumb, but that was yeah. funny, too. Oh, my he gosh. Does look what, like what a mess. Too. What a mess. Yeah. yeah. So I totally agree oh with the manufacturing God, so consent. Uh, notions that you've just laid out. I, I, you know, I love Chomsky. Absolutely correct on the right and on the left. I do take issue with you saying that Crowder's a grifter because I think he honestly believes in the things that he espouses. And some of his stuff yeah. is funny. I mean, when his stuff goes viral, it's generally pretty funny. 
Well, you know, I've I've agreed to disagree on him being funny, but I do think that I I call him a grifter because I've seen him specifically manipulate and uh, uh, misrepresent data in ways that are egregious. You know, cutting out sections of a graph that you don't like because they disagree with your actual uh, point that you're trying to make, that's grifting at a certain point. That's well, Now, just, he could honestly believe, uh, I mean, he can honestly believe in that, like, oh, this part of the graph shouldn't be seen because I think that's misleading and I want to make my point. But I think the bigger point here, too, is not whether or not he's a grifter, but why someone would be willing to pay him $50 million over the course of four years, maybe three years, to put out certain messages when he will not be bringing in that much money. And that goes back to his messages are benefiting people who uh, want to spend $50 million a year on someone who just so that he can have uh, those messages out there. And I think that's the, the greater point. Can I share my take on it? Cause it's, it's sure. The, absolutely. It's a complete yeah. opposite. There are many of us who are glad that he told the daily wire to go pound sand. And the reason why is because the contract was one of those old timey, like the, the old musicians used to get where the first page the the music company tells you all the stuff they're going to give you. And then the whole rest of the contract is all the ways that they're going to take that money back from you. That's the type of contract that Daily Wired offered to Crowder. And he said no. And the reason why is because he wants to own his own content and he doesn't want to be cut off at the knees with his messaging. And he was concerned that that's exactly what they were going to do. And because there's a big election coming up in 2024, Daily Wire is not only looking to influence whoever they've hired, you know, whether it's Candace or uh, Jordan Peterson or whoever they've got in their family, but yeah. they also want to like cut them off at the knees in terms of their messaging. And so I'm proud of Crowder that he wants to stay independent and that his demographic can be assured. He's not a puppet on a string from the daily wire. Some of their stuff is good, but some of it is really sketchy. And there are many of us, you know, I'm, I'm a conservative, but there are many of us who are Trump supporters who are like, we hate we hate the right just as much as we we despise certain people on the left. You know, we, we want to be in the middle with independent thinkers. I think independent journalism is the future. And anybody who's listening to me right now can go over to Substack right this minute and start writing exactly what you said you wanted, which was an independent voice on a free right. platform. You can even make some money on it. I'm actually making money on mine, which is amazing. And, you know. You can say whatever you want. Nobody will edit you. You can make a video. You can make an audio. You know, it's yeah. it's a fabulous platform. And there are people over there who are just rocking it right now. So many independent voices. Matt Taibbi, yeah. Glenn Greenwald, Barry Weiss. There's so many others. And so I think we've got the tools that we need to expose all the lies, all the frauds, manufacture our voices instead of other, you know, corporate voices and I think with the Twitter files that have come out so far with more to come, I mean, the people who've been behind the scenes controlling everybody are being outed right in front of our faces. It's the most glorious time for free, the free press that I think we've ever had. And it's, I just think it's a very exciting time. Well, yeah, I, you know, I, I will say it might be the most, it might be the time where 
at least in our lifetime, where the press is the most free, but the degree to which it's still controlled should be, you know, gives me a lot of concern, should be kind of shocking, um, or at least concerning, right? Like the, the, this idea too, <sighs> behind like uh, Substack, I think things like Substack are good generally, but I do worry about the extent to which, uh, put it this way, institutional power. Well, how do I put this? What am I thinking? All I know by it is on Colin and Substack, I have a voice. I've been I've been canceled out of every other social media platform, and I think Google is messing with my WordPress. But I'm getting traffic at Substack. I'm finding listeners here on Colin. And for somebody who has been completely deplatformed, that means yeah. everything. Well, I think that's good. I think, you know, to, I think the the lack of, well, I don't want to say lack of censorship, but that's basically what I mean, right? Like, I don't, I want there to be, to a large extent, less filters to uh, stop people from speaking truth to power. And Me that's, too. that's not like, but I don't, I guess when I look at the infrastructure that we currently have, I I, I'm still a little worried that that's that there are still a lot of choke points. You know, I think I think Absolutely. one of the things that I worry about with with the the Twitter files, which I'd like more clarification on, is the extent to which uh, Musk and the people at Twitter are giving full information to Matt Taibbi versus half information. And I think, uh, actually, actually Brianna Joy Gray did a, an episode about this with, with Glenn Greenwald of all people. What did he say about, I didn't hear, I, it. I, you know, I can't remember exactly. I think, I think what Glenn Greenwald's position was because I don't think they knew either because there's another guy who was reporting on it, who tend to have a more like leftward leaning slant who ended up, uh, not getting as much access to the Twitter files as people like Taibbi and Barry Weiss, which I found interesting. Just the fact that he was only given like 24 hours access versus full access like Taibbi and Barry Weiss was weird in and of itself, right? Like if you're going to release that information to reporters, then you give all of them the same amount to work with. You don't filter who gets what and how long they get to have it for. But that being said, with – um. I believe Greenwald's position or his argument was, well, look, anyone who gives you information is to one extent or another uh, filtering it in some way. And if they gave you information that was still newsworthy on its own, even if it was filtered, then you should still report on that. And I understand that position, but that's the problem with the manufacturing of consent. That's exactly what we have going on, what we've had going on with um, – media for as long as there's been mass media is even the once people have restricted the universe of things which they deem okay to report on once you know big brother has given you the okay as to what universe of files you're allowed to access then you can report and that's still a problem with things like uh, you know billionaires owning twitter uh billionaires owning facebook generally billionaires, right? That's still going to be an issue. And I do, I think Substack's great. I think that's 
I think more outlets for people uh, like you, who I will disagree with on thinking that Steven Crowder is funny. <laughs> um, but I don't want more... to show three hours a day, but there are some of his little <laughs> sketches and whatnot that are, are pretty funny. And, Again, you know, I like him agree the way to I like... disagree, but no, I, I, like I do the like, the, I like the 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 access of people having uh, the ability to actually uh, publish their things. Look, I, I I want there to be more avenues for dissident information for for people who are like Julian Assange, uh, and who are willing to take that risk, because you know part of the, uh, part of what worries me is. You know, what if what if Julian Assange, like there was another Julian Assange today who published a whole bunch of stuff on, on I don't know, like Elon Musk or billionaires and suddenly banned from every single platform imaginable. It creates a system where people will not report on those billionaires again, especially when those people are uh, who are reporting depend in some part, uh, their livelihoods depend in some part on them breaking stories, on them reporting news, reporting these things. Like uh, there's a cooling effect. And, and there's a know, lot of, there's a lot the of biggest, avenues for that still. The biggest problem I have had with the mainstream news is how much of it is in fact funded by pharmaceutical companies. And I think they hold way too much sway over what is produced on those shows. And every time you see a news broadcast in this this segment brought to you by Pfizer, I, I think we should be allowed to ask, you know, what sort of censorship was going on with that? And what was I not told? And I, I'm looking yeah, forward to sure. the Fauci files coming out. Uh, Elon said they're going to come in February. They were supposed to come out two weeks ago. And so I'm a little miffed at him for that because I was hoping for them to come out. But I think it's going so, to be next month, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing them. And and I I hope that information's out there, whatever's in them. But I will say, I wonder why it's taking another two weeks for those files to come out. I wonder if maybe Twitter is combing through those things first and then determining what it wants to put out or not. And I wonder what the incentives for doing so would be. I mean, look, there are sometimes there are, there are good reasons to comb through stuff at times, right? Um, Assange and WikiLeaks didn't just put out everything that they got. No, they, they combed were good through about the files redacting. first. They were they good redacted people. Yeah. People's names, people's things that were, you know, could endanger the lives and safety of people directly, they redacted. There is always going to be some filtering process. So just the fact that filtering is happening does not necessarily mean it's nefarious or that it's made to shape a message. But I agree. There's a lot of filtering that's done specifically for that. And, yeah. uh, you know, maybe we can take a, 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 this is a weird thing to say, but maybe we can take some, uh, when it comes to censorship, we can take a little bit of uh, uh, inspiration from uh, how America does uh, discovery in a, uh, in litigation, which is basically you know, both sides get to ask for anything that can or could be relevant. And then you dump all the files after going through them for things like privilege, you know, uh, making sure that you're not disclosing anything that would violate or uh, would destroy attorney client privilege or, you know, stuff like that. I, you end up getting a lot of stuff that's irrelevant. You end up getting a lot of stuff that is like, uh, 
you know, I can't tell you how many people's emails I've seen where they're like, Hey, I'm going to go to golf and then I'm going to come home and I'm going to fuck you, which is, you know, that has nothing to do with the story about fraud, but it's, well, you know, to, it's to Elon's credit. He very mm-hmm. quickly determined that James Baker was in fact acting as a gatekeeper to who but saw that's what. not, he was a gatekeeper, but that's, that ended up not being the case. Um, well, he was a gatekeeper. True. He was technically like a gatekeeper, but it turns out that his filtering system, apparently from the reporting I've heard afterwards, uh, was not as nefarious as we were led to believe. In fact, he was. One I of don't the people care. I didn't. I didn't was, want him. But we have to care, right? I didn't want because James Baker we can't just be. We, but we have to care to some extent, right? We we do because what we're trying to figure out again is not just like guilt by association here, but we're trying to figure out how good is the information that we're getting versus how much is it the creation of some kind of. Uh, you know, plot to make us think and and feel and and look at the stories based on certain parameters or within a certain context. And I Let's think say, in some I ways, I mean, and I'll, 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 I'll finish this up real quick, but I think in some ways what, what I find fascinating about the, the Baker situation is that I think to the extent that there is a um, almost like a virtue signaling or a, a filtering process in that first batch of Twitter files, I think that there's more to be seen or there's more filtering that's coming from the process of Elon firing Baker than there is of Baker actually going through those files first, which is ironic in this situation. It's absolutely ironic. I would not expect that at all. I would say, yeah, Baker, this FBI guy, like who, yeah, get him out of here. But I find that interesting. You know, I think, I think that's an, that's one of the, I don't know, I, th- that just caught me off guard when I was thinking about that and when I saw that. But um, anyway, you had, say, you had another thought? I feel better about the Twitter files knowing that he, sure. in particular, is no longer part of the process. I mean, is there a bigger spook than James Baker? And I, you know, he can do whatever he wants with his life. I don't want him the one determining what I get to see. He could be a baker. <laughs> Thanks, bye. Okay. Yeah, Jenny, thanks show. for calling in. Yeah, right, I appreciate bye-bye. it. Yeah, good luck with your Substack and, uh, you know, Stephen Crowder's uh, comedy routine or whatever. <laughs> I feel like I feel like you're a writer. You got to be a writer for Stephen Crowder to find him funny. <laughs> like no, you got to. You got. No, I'm the one who gets to determine what I find funny. A hundred percent, you do. Sometimes. 100%. Some conservative people do come up with some pretty funny stuff. Well, there are plenty of conservative people who are funny, believe it or not. Like Shane Gillis, he's more conservative, but he's funny. Like he's – no one's going to tell me that Shane Gillis is not funny with a lot of the stuff that he does, right? Some of it's a little whatever, but like he's funny. Um trying to think of other like conservative people. Bill Maher's getting there, but he's funny. Like at times he's funny. Like I like him. Um or I think I I think he's fine at making jokes. I'm trying to think of who else is. I I can put a list out later. But my uh, Kelsey Grammer, yeah, Kelsey Grammer's been funny. Um, but like stand-ups who are really funny. Dave Chappelle, who are really really funny. Well, Chappelle's he, funny. He's not a conservative, Chappelle. but I no, love Chappelle. No, he's not. Not not in the least. Um, yeah, Bill Cosby was funny. That's fair. Bill Cosby, and he's more conservative, but he was very funny. Uh, Stavros is of course fun. Okay, if you name anyone from Cumtown. Of course they're funny. 
All right. Let, let's just put that out there right now. They're, they're some of the funniest guys I've ever heard period. But um, Jenny, thanks. Thanks for calling. Uh, Thank you. Good luck. And, and talk to you again soon. Okay. Bye. All right. And uh, Brady been having a little bit of a, looks like a flame war in the chat. I don't know what's going on there, but uh, oh, just another day, just another day making progress, you know, <laughs> another day being progressive. That's how it goes. Um, yeah, sure. But uh, I would just like to add that while the right wing grifters are motivated by money, um, left left wing grifters are motivated by social clout likes you know what I mean? Like attention, you know? Um, and it's just as toxic. It, it, it's cheaper than money. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. and there's been plenty of examples of that, that I'm actually, gonna, I'm actually working on a report right now about the synthetic left blue and on and, um, how they're using union busting tactics to actually stall progress. And, um, it's going to be good. I think it's gonna be yeah, interesting. That sounds like a good topic. I mean, we could, that you know, the vote against the uh the railroad strike that uh AOC and Jamal Bowman and the, the squad had. Um mm -hmm. sounds like it might fit into yeah. that as well. But Yeah, I honestly feel like Sabby Sabs is like the closest thing we have to a real squad. Um, especially here on Colin. You know, I feel like she's making more progress on that one show. Um, talking politics more in, in regular people here on Colin too, making more progress than yeah. I think the squad has in the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably fair. Honestly. I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of good takes on Colin. So a name that I don't hear floated enough. Everyone's finally getting hip to Whitney Webb. And that's really nice uh, to see. I'd love to see these right wing guys debate her. Um, but James Corbett is another name I would like to hear floated more often. He has some really good material, uh, especially a segment he calls uh, Solutions Watch, which is focused on an individual solution to one of the many problems we have. And it's an extensive uh, segment full of really good information. He actually interviewed Nick Brana, who is go, uh, you know, the, the Rage Against the War Machine rally guy. And uh, Nick Brana kind of failed to produce any like legitimate goals or tangible like you know missions for the movement it's more about like hey we're just gonna get the word out there and get some more support and followers for our parties and it sounds like he's charging money for any groups to kind of join the movement which is just fucking stupid and like obscenely disgusting to me um and so you know i've started my own third party legitimate left wing party movement and it's going pretty good. Like we got some things going for us. I think I'm going to take Jenny's advice and make a sub stack and put all the ideas in one place so people can review them, um, debate them, uh, criticize them, and then hopefully um, actually contribute in some way on their own to a few things we need, which is good ideas, good candidates um, for both local and national sh seats, all the local and national seats, including all the way up to president. Um, we need good questions for those candidates. We need good investigative targets, good actions. We need new uh, political comedy, new political music, and um, also infrared lie detecting debates, something I call the political barbecue. Hey, what? Where, um, what? Hold on. Yes, this is a great idea, man. <laughs> hold this on, okay, hold on. Did you say, let me, let me just, hold on. I just want to make sure I didn't like fucking miss that though. 
Did you say? Yeah, no, you got it. <laughs> Hold on, dude. <laughs> Sorry, man. I'm getting a little goofy. It's been a long like. No, your, your reaction. Week, your reaction says movie. that you heard it right. Yeah. <laughs> but you said infrared lie detector debates. <laughs> yes. Dude, what is that, dude? How, how does that work? Lit- no, it's the perfect litmus test for any candidate or any political, um, anyone holding any seat. Uh, you simply submit yourself to a series of questions from any journalist or, you know, anyone really, and um, submit your answers to those questions in front of an infrared camera that's capable of detecting the heat on your forehead. And that is enough to determine when someone is lying with like a much higher accuracy than the standard polygraphs in the past. Hold on. Especially if you combine them with AI. Infrared forehead lie detector. Okay, let me see. Works great, yeah. Okay, let me. I gotta see this. You know what you come up with? This is fucking incredible. Let's do a (laughs) let's do a debunking of this idea right now and see if it's a legit idea. I just want to see. Like what the? Yeah, it's cool as fuck. I mean, here's the cool thing about it. Another cool thing about it is very cheap. Um, you can actually get an infrared camera that attaches to your cell phone, and we could potentially use that in conjunction with machine learning to um have a very cheap way of lie detecting anyone, um with a camera instantly. So, okay. So say I have like a five head, like a really big forehead. Right. And, and the surface area of my forehead is very large that it just disperses heat really well compared to like this tiny forehead, you know, those little three head noobs or whatever. Right. And what, what if my forehead just doesn't get that hot? Like I got a big old, I got that five head, I got like basically heat sinks in my yeah. forehead to where it's like distributing the heat really well. Like, yeah, it's never a problem, what? never a problem because it, it's calibrated to your state and it detects the changes in temperature is what we're looking for. I um, see. So it doesn't matter if you got a fever or anything like that. Um, okay. The lies are still going to show up clear as day on that infrared. But what about like a psychopath or someone who? doesn't like feel anything when they lie like could i or or what if i have like a they might be able to do a little better but it's better than nothing it's still pretty damn accurate and as a matter of fact they might not be able to slide past one of these infrared tests i actually don't know the answer that is that is like Nicole, I'm just, I've never like heard, heard of this. And I'm looking looking up, this is old technology. Yes, it's ancient tech. Yeah, it's like yeah. Tech it looks, from the it 80s. And uh, but it's the perfect so, political so, litmus test. You know, who's going to have a conversation about civil rights in front of an infrared camera? Not a lot. Not a lot. It's going to weed out a lot of the synthetic left right there. I want this to happen. I don't know if I don't. I'm going to be honest. I don't. I don't tend to believe in any of this stuff. But I think this would be fucking hilarious. If nothing else, like please, just just, like uh, come in front of the barbecue lights. (laughs) Yeah, that was a fire (laughs) going in the background. (laughs) And it'd be like Maury. It'd be like Maury on crack. (laughs) Maury on LSD. Yeah, yeah. Maury on DMT. And the results are you are full of shit. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> you are yeah. the father. <laughs> like instant feedback. We could literally have like pretty quick feedback on that as well. 
Um, so we'd be able to vibe check somebody question by question. Well, Brady, I think just for ideas like that, you should start a sub stack. A hundred percent should start a sub stack. It is, uh, I need to write those ideas down in one place. Yeah, definitely do that. Cause that's, that's shit. It's a good one. It's one of my best ideas so far. (laughs) I think it's honestly one of my best ideas in years. The political, well, barbecue. You gotta... the political barbecue and the idea is to get people to come together and watch politicians get grilled instead of watching football games. You know, you can come together, get some food, get some drinks and watch the politicians fucking eat their own bullshit. I think that sounds better than sports to me. I mean, better than any football game. I mean, I would pay real money to see it happen, too. I mean, they're motivated by money. So, I mean, I shit, I would drop a hundred dollars right now to see Joe Biden debate. Uh, Vladimir Putin in front of one of these cameras. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if they would ever debate. I don't know if they would, but but the the um, well, I'll say the last thing I'll say, and then uh, I am I I guys, I hit a wall not too long ago. I think my Red Bulls uh, <laughs> wore off, and I am yeah. I'm starting to Google babble. I can hear it in my voice, and uh, but last thing I I would want to say, Brady, or ask if I can even fucking remember it now. Um, God, what was it? Oh, yeah, that idea of uh, debates political as well, political barbecue, right? But debates as entertainment. Do you think that, in the context of you know the conversation of manufacturing consent and making news that is meant to uh, get a reaction out of people and meant to create like an emotional sort of uh, connection to it or to scare them or whatever. Do, do you think that the, the prospect of trying to make debates more uh, entertaining or more like football, as, as you said, or like, set, you know, to replace Sunday football, do you think that has any risk of continuing that same structure of manufacturing consent just through the entertainification of topics of something that should be less spectacle uh, or what, what would you say to that? Well, either way, I don't think they want to manufacture very much debate at all. Actually. I think they're very against manufacturing any form of debate. Uh, in fact, they're very afraid of it because I think debate is the greatest mitigator of war. As a matter of fact, uh, echo chambers actually lead to pol- uh, political polarization, which leads to extremism, which then spills over into violence eventually. So the number, the best way to disrupt an echo chamber is with open debate and something I call an orchestral chamber where you hear everyone's ideas and the best ideas rise to the top eventually or or very quickly, actually, (laughs) especially in an open debate. And um, I I would offer that before we spend a dollar, this is the demand of the proxy party, is that before we ever spend any resources on any war at all, there has to be open um, democratic debate. Um, before that ever takes place, of course, in front of an infrared camera. Yeah, <laughs> as as you will, right? Of, of course, in front of the infrared camera. Well, Brady, I I, I appreciate you appreciate calling, you calling in. in. Let's uh, get those infrared cameras I, I, on C-SPAN as well. Let's do it. Let's, let's do, do it. it. I'm I'm let's for it. it. I'm I'm I, you know I'm here for that for sure. Uh, but thanks for calling in. And uh, oh, looks like we got one more caller from July. Uh, so July, hey, how's it going? The OG. Hey, July, here. I'm sorry I'm late. What I miss? <laughs> you know, just a whole a whole episode of 
<laughs> Talking about manufacturing consent and everything else. And oh, I'm so I'm so happy I made it for the infrared, um, the bar the barbecue, the the barbecue. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was great. <laughs> I, I'm and I'm really sorry. I I really am sorry, but I wanted to be here for this topic really bad. I got stu- I was co-hosting a Twitter space that just was nuts. I don't even want to talk about it, but I just wanted oh, to, wow. I just wanted to say hello. And I'm going, we're going to talk to you. Hi, everyone in the chat. Hi, Peter. <laughs> Peter and I have been talking. I helped. Yeah, you. that's good. Did you listen to that show that he had? Like I did. Class? I did. Yeah, it was great. It was great. I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, it was fantastic. And I know that at some point we're supposed to be coordinating for uh, some topic or another, but that would be, that would be great uh, to uh, and then I'll do an episode on uh, more focused on getting back to the basics of some law, uh, which I'm sure all of you love it when I talk lawyer to you. It is uh, <laughs> your favorite thing, I'm sure. Well, this, these I mean, we sort of have a couple of projects we're talking about. But one is like I, I, I don't think I've ever said, but I grew up in a family of like six lawyers. It was yeah. like a lot of pressure to sort of go that route in some respect, but really what you see behind the scenes is where the real action is. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's sort of also like, you know, you're still a lawyer. So it's like, you know, maybe a little tricky to tell those stories on, you know, well, we'll talk about it. Let's just talk. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about it for sure. For sure. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I'm looking forward to it either way. And, uh, I, it's always fun to do the show and see your face down there or by your face. I mean, your cat's face. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, do you have any, uh, parting, parting words, parting shots to, uh, the rest of the Fred Hampton and the suites? Well, I just wanted to say thank you for another eventful stay and for taking such good care of us, you know, at, at your your inn and sweets, your sweet, sweet, sweets. So. <laughs> well, thank you, July. It's always a pleasure to uh, hear from you. And uh, uh, you could stay here as long as you'd like. Uh, so. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. bye. All right. Thanks. Hey, right, bye. July, everybody. Uh, well, that's the show, everyone. Uh, happy to see so many familiar faces down there, too. I see Martin and Derek and Samantha and Fahim, of course, uh, Jazz, Alana, Omar. I see y'all. I see, uh, of course, Isaac, everybody. Uh, you, you know. You, if you know, you know. Uh, good to see you all. And again, just a quick summary. If people are getting paid $50 million for a four-year contract or offered it, when the company that is even offering him that money does not even make that much money, does not make the money to pay him. Uh, then the messages that he's putting out are benefiting someone else or the people who can afford to pay that kind of money and take a hit on that kind of money. And when we look at that, when we look at why so many people go to the right wing grift or go to grifting, it's because money, you can get a lot of money from that shit. And uh, whether or not Steven Crowder himself is a grifter, which I tend to think he is, uh, 
is really it's non-material to the fact that somebody with that kind of money is willing to pay him that kind of money to keep putting out the kind of shit he's putting out. And I think we need to look at these things from the standpoint of Chomsky, from the standpoint of Michael Parenti, as, as Andrew was saying, um, and know that people want to shape messages in a way that is benefiting the power structure as it is. And uh, don't believe the hype. Don't fall for them. All right. I got to go take a nap. It is cold as hell in here. I'm going to go yell at someone for the heat not being on. <laughs>